Hi, this is Paul, and some of you will recognize this woman. She is Elizabeth Oldfield, and it was, oh, not too long ago, someone told me, there's a Verbeke talk out there that you haven't watched yet. And <gasps> I know, it was a big deal. And so then I watched it, and I thought, this was the best Verbeke interview I've ever heard. And I met John about four years ago because... You know, all the stuff that had happened in my life when I started making videos about Jordan Peterson. And, um, and, but that was just such an interview. And then I listened to some more of your interviews. I listened to your Peugeot interview. And I thought, oh, I, and then you came up with this, um, you came up with this quote in Justin Brierley's podcast, which just, oh my goodness, she's living my life. Can't stand it. I gotta find out what's going on over here and what what led to this. So that's what we are going to do this morning. And um, it's kind of afternoon for me. It's evening for you, but it comes out in the morning usually. So Elizabeth, thank you for taking some time to talk with me. Lovely to be here. All right. Well, this is how I begin. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Maybe like the home you grew up in. Hmm. I grew up in uh, we in England. We call them the home counties, and I have no idea why. But they're basically the counties that surround London in the southeast. And when people say home counties, what they hear is something quite safe and tame, and not 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 quite suburban because London doesn't stretch out that far. There's a lots of countryside, but it's um. Yeah, it's uh, if, if anyone is a Harry Potter reader, I had a friend come visit me um, when we were adults. We went to stay with my parents' house for the weekend to like gather some friends, and he walked, he walked up the steps, and he said, "Oh, you grew up in Privet Drive," and I said, "Okay, <laughs> Privet Drive is this place where the Dursleys live in Harry Potter, which is the sort of definition of suburbia, or rather, small town, small village." cookie cutter houses, mm. um, that kind of world, okay. uh, which was very safe and very nice, not particularly exciting. And my main sense um, growing up there was desire to see the world and desire mm. to have come from somewhere more wild. You know, I wanted to be Scottish or Irish or <laughs> something with some grit to it, not from... A little village outside Basingstoke. So what did your parents do for a living? My dad was a GP, a general practitioner. I think family doctor oh, is okay. commonly yeah. the understood term. And my mum raised us when we were little and then went back to her work as a midwife and then later on retrained as a health visitor. Um, I'm not sure what the the, the amazing nurses or midwives who are then specially trained to work with young children with, with infants and mothers as they learn to breastfeed and in those first couple of years of life. How many siblings? Just one. Just my one. younger brother. Yeah. How, how did your parents meet? The story goes they met over a um, coding patient on a ward, as in, you know, a, yeah. a, in, 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 in resuscitating a patient. Uh, my they, they met in hospital. My mom was a nurse. My dad was a trainee doctor my nanny was the ward matron very very fierce cockney uh 
extremely authoritative, like lifelong nurse who had two of her daughters working on the same ward as her. Um, and then, yeah, their eyes met across a patient who I gather didn't die, but, you know, <laughs> I'm hoping they didn't get too distracted. <laughs> There's just so many American soap opera images that come to mind with a young doctor and a young nurse and they're coding and their eyes meet over this moment of emergency. It's That's great. That's great. Yeah. Did you go to church when you were young? A bit. So my mom's family had no um, religious faith or practice at all. I would say sort of low level hostility. In a way, there's quite a patches of the sort of British working class I would say for several generations have felt very disenfranchised by church not relevant to them didn't want to be preached at it's just like snobby snooty place to be and that was my mum's family's reaction to the idea um my dad came from a kind of different background and was sent to the kind of school where you went to chapel and so he had more uh inculcation in the sort of rituals and rhythms of church. Um, but there was no, there was no kind of, uh, there was no discussion of it in the home. There was a brief period in my memory where we were taken to the local Methodist church, essentially as free childcare. So we were left in Sunday school and then they went home for mummy and daddy time, um, which I knew full well what it was by a certain age because they were medical and they were very frank about these things. Um, but it was very boring and uh, I now can look back and through my adult eyes, see the beauty of a congregation of older women mm. and think, wow, they must, th the stories they would have told mm. these faithful prayer warriors. Yeah. At the time I was a like snooty and dismissive and ageist child. And I was just like, oh, old ladies, I can see through their hair to their scalp and I can't focus on what they're saying. Um, <laughs> um yeah so i wasn't i wasn't um particularly enamored or connected hmm. i think there was then a gap of several years but honestly none of us really remember i've sort of gone back to try and stitch this this like bit of my testimony together and not entirely sure of the chronology but at some point between deciding i didn't want to hang out with the um older ladies at the Methodist church on my own while my parents went home. Um, and then being in, which I think was kind of six, seven, eight, maybe when I must've been about 14, I was then taken by a friend's youth group to a, a Christian festival. And, and there had a very powerful, uh, ex charismatic, ecstatic experience, which felt like the beginning of something real. Hmm. And did something take right then or was it kind of an isolated experience that bore fruit later? No, it was a real, this is, this is the world, the world has changed around me. Hmm. I have, I have such a strong, I've tried to write about it a couple of times and it's one of those real, like, uh, word is such a left hemispheric thing, right? There's a, there's a, the, 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 who is it I was reading talked about trying to catch capture God in a cage of concepts. Mm. And every time I sort of try and sidle up to what happened there and, you know, my, my kind of writerly ego is like, I can definitely describe this experience. It sort of just stops dead. Um, so yes, I remember not being Christian before 
and then standing up and being like, oh, well, I guess this is it. And I guess so you got mugged. I, I guess <laughs> I'm in. Yeah, I really did. I, and I prayed, God, if you're there, will you show me? And it was like, yes, I will. What you asked for. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was un, undeniably answered in the most dr dramatic possible way. Um, skeptics naive prayer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what did your parents think of this? I just have no memory of what my dad uh, thought. He was a GP, so he was at work a lot. Um, my mum took one look at my face and said, what the hell has happened to you? Like, as I, ca I can see her standing in the corner of my hallway. I had all these bags. I'd barely showered. I must have been absolutely reeking from a week in a field. And she just took one look at my face and was like, what's different? And about some some point in the next six months or a year could see the change in me so distinctly that she decided she wanted some of that so she then went on an alpha course and had her own really powerful wow. conversion experience T tell me a little bit more about so you said a week in a field um was, was this a retreat or a camp out or no it was a big christian festival um big youth festival that like Various points of my story now is shrouded with some sadness because there has been a recent scandal about the oh. leader of that festival. It was called Soul Survivor. And for mm. a, at least a decade, probably more, it was a place where lots of the people in my generation who became Christians found a lot of um, life and joy and freedom. I think yeah. it was part of the sort of van no, what do you call it? The Toronto blessing wave oh, yeah, yeah. thing that hit yep. the UK Anglican churches and <laughs> shook them up a bit. Um, uh, and it was, you know, you, you took a tent and then there were, there was a skate park where I spent the entirety of the week before the moment that I plucked up the courage to, to pray that prayer and, you know, cafes and bands and all, all the stuff that you do to keep teenagers happy. So, okay. So you have this experience. Do you start going to church? And what mm. kind of church? Initially, the, the Anglican church that was nearest, um, that was the, the that was in it was in this moment of um it's funny when you think about it. I, I both <laughs> whenever I try to tell the story, there's both the kind of very personal story, and then there's the years as a religion think tank director, and the the switching between the sociological language. And the personal language sometimes feels like sport. Um, but uh, yeah, so we were, you know, speaking in tongues and learning to prophesy over each other and um, crying, 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 crying. I just cried so much that year after I became a Christian and it was really normal. There was a, there was a woman called um, Ross. She was an American woman. What was her name? Anyway, she was very kind and she used to make amazing Boston potatoes. And uh, she she said, uh, oh, I just I just gave up, honey. I just wore the tissues on a string around my neck. <laughs> I was like, yeah. So what? much emotion just about what about what year was this? Late 90s. OK, OK. Because it's helpful because, you know, if you're, I've, I, 
I was in college and seminary during the 80s, and then I was in foreign missions until the late 90s, and then I returned to California. And there's, you know, obviously there's there's geography and layers, and so if you're if you're swimming in broader Christian culture, it's kind of helped to get a certain contextualized. So in the late 90s, yeah, there was a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff roaring around. So, oh, okay. So, um, let's get back to. Uh, University. What did you study? Mm. English, literature, and history. Oh, okay. Where did you go to university? I went to York University, which is a small and cozy and delightful sort of small city university in the north of England. And I went there because it was delightful. Well, it had a great English and history department. And it was delightfully unpretentious. It was really... Uh, welcoming and inclusive and everyone called you duck yorkshire people are just delightful there's such a just such a spirit of uh yeah i really for a long time i tried to be a born again northerner i was like i really, I really want to be from here not from where i'm from <laughs> I, i've been to i've been to england twice and um the more i see the stranger it all gets your little country <laughs> Yes, um, it's old York. It's literally where that comes from. Now, um, okay, romance. So you're a young woman, and I know that these Christian Pentecostal youth things, boy, they can be charged in terms of romance. Um, were you someone mm -hmm. who eschewed it? Were you falling for the uh, the key kid strategy, as Young Life used to say? Um, what was that Do about? Do you know what you? that is? Oh, blessed are you. Well, Young Life was a uh, was a high school ministry in the United States that somebody somewhere read a sociology book and figured out that if the captain of the football team became a Christian, lots of other kids would. So you can sort of pump up your stats in terms of conversions by um, by having the by focusing on the kids at the top of the hierarchy, and then the other dominoes will fall. How's that for? Uh, a hard-bitten, cynical pastor perspective at a uh, parish, American parachurch youth mission organization. But there we are. Oh, dear Lord. No, I, luckily I swerved that. Um... I'm from America, after all. <laughs> we do religion big here. You do it different. Um, no, I think I sort of skipped the early teens youth group because I wasn't in and around church. And then... Um, I'm nearly six foot, so there was, you know, there, there was just wasn't there wasn't an issue for quite a chunk of my teens. Uh, older men, creepy older men, yes. People are people are way shorter on YouTube. I get it all the time because yeah, I'm yeah. Dutch, so I'm quite tall, and people see me, they're like, oh, so yeah. All right, so that 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 puts you that puts you in university, and you're studying English and history. Um, mm -hmm. what, what did you do career-wise after university did with this, with this, with this big change and transformation in your life where you, where you just set on, on, you wanted to be ministry focused or are you going to go out into the secular world? What? No. Okay. Well, I have me. never wanted to be ministry focused. Really? Um, no. Why? Never. Not professionally. Okay. Say like more. I want, I wanted my life to be 
of some use uh, for a different kind of kingdom. But I don't know. I just... At various points, people say, oh, are you going to be a vicar? And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, no. So I, when I was growing up, I was going to be Judy Dench. Do you know who Judy Dench yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that, that was literally what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a national treasure. I wanted to be like an amazing television and theatre actor. I had five dance lessons a week, and three drama lessons a week. And... Um, was all the all the school plays and I did A level theatre studies, um, and so I was going to go to university and get a proper degree for my the sake of my parents, uh, and then I was going to apply to RADA. That was my plan. Um, and so I did loads of drama in my first year of university, and it was in loads of plays. And I had this very strong. My, Is your my, child coming? It's an incursion. Shall, shall I pause? Do you not want your child seen on a video? I definitely don't want them seen on video. No. I will pause. What was I saying? Okay. Um, you want to be Judy yeah. Dench. You want to be Judy Dench. Yeah, I did loads of drama in my first year and got loads of parts. Uh, I sort of campus plays and could feel my ego inflating and inflating and inflating i loved it i was like walk around campus you know oh i loved you and that oh thank you so much just like really not ready character wise for that ad at, what was it oh, this is like students right it was so, so but in your head when you're a student it's the whole world yes I yes like, i i could i could just feel myself changing and getting a bit more fake and pretentious mm. and aware of how I looked. I'd never, like, I'd literally, I'd always cut my own hair before. I'd never worn makeup. I was this proper tomboy. And then suddenly I was in this situation where you're looked at all the time. And I went away on a sort of summer mission trip with a, um, with a, a faith-based development agency and just had one of those real kind of soul moments of, Am I just going to spend my life prancing around performing for compliments? Which is not what I think about acting as a vocation. I think there are there are like there there are ways that where people have a genuine vocation and the character for it and do it with great integrity and it's a blessing to the world. But I was not ready to be one of those people <laughs> at all. Um, and so I stopped acting like stone dead and I started directing and I love directing because you've got the same kind of ensemble feeling without me being out there and it being about my glory. Um, and I was uh, writing all these essays about the kind of engine of culture and literature and poetry and the historical events that were happening at the time and the way those two things work together. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, I was still reasonably recently into church culture. Mm -hmm. I had picked up that the kind of jobs that Christian women did were primary school teacher, nurse, mom. Like I wasn't even in like hardcore conservative evangelical churches, but there was something about, there weren't that many role models. There was a really strong sense of like the, anything that was very like mission work, ministry or caring roles or what were celebrated or high status or whatever. I was like, oh no, Lord, I'm too gobby for all of those. 
but I guess, you know, pick up my cross. I'll go, I don't know, serve the poor or something. I'm sure that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, I remember lying in bed once and I've been writing this essay about the stories that a culture tells about itself and sort of power of the media and the, the power of communication and storytelling to shape the norms of a moment. I was lying there and I prayed, Lord, I don't understand why you wouldn't want me to be involved in these things. And it was another moment of really feeling like I had a really strong response. And it was very much like a cocked eyebrow, like, did I ever say that I didn't? I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Am I allowed to go work over there? And that was a real turning point. Okay. I want to, I feel compelled to say, uh, make a note to my American listeners, about 50% of my um, viewers on YouTube are from the United States. Some of my, um, I, I have two good friends who who live in the north of your country in Bradford right now. I met them mm -hmm. when I was a missionary in the Dominican Republic. I was living in a little town and they were living in even a smaller town where some very proper British gentlemen had a little rescue mission for a tiny little village there. And these two came over, they were unmarried when they came over and they were um, already in love. She had been a Christian and, and he had a very interesting I won't tell his story here or even name them because he's they've actually become quite important in certain circles in Christendom UK. But one of the things that I've noticed in knowing them over the years and listening to your story, America Christianity in America and Great Britain are very have very different valences in terms of communities and um and even though there's a lot of stuff that sort of goes back and forth over the ocean. Um, just mm. listening to you describe your story is absolutely delightful. And I'm just going to warn American listeners to be careful about sort of the the assumed background you sort of paste her story onto, because uh, being a Christian, the kind of Christian that you clearly became in the UK is a very different thing than being that in a place like Louisiana or Tennessee or even places in California. So. Yeah. You're I mean, I was going to Church of England churches this whole time, you know, the local parish church where everyone everywhere went at the, you know, it was, it was very much charismatic, but within the sort of sense of the mainstream establishment church center of gravity and did, they didn't come with a lot of the, like the, I think it's slightly on the turn now, but what you need to understand about the UK church is that it, it, it's politically much more muddled up and mixed. And so you could, adopt you know what I was essentially sort of Pentecostal charismatic Christian and be extremely um pro-welfare pro-immigration yep. yep. you know there's a very strong strand of that in the Labour Party yep. you know the Labour Party owing more to Methodism than Marx is this classic line about the kind of key left-wing party in the UK um and so yeah it's right to say some of these signifiers don't work the same way here yeah it's also the truth that, and I've also discovered in speaking to friends of mine from the UK, that quite understandably, most of your impressions about American Christianity tend to be filtered through the media. And the media is kind of a distorted filter with respect to religious and everything? political <laughs> Yeah, everything. So not in a kind of like evil conspiracy way. Just no, no, it's just it's, that. It's incentive structure, structure yes. means that it gives up a very partial particular picture of everything. Yeah. And there have been many, many studies that have demonstrated that people who go into journalism in the United States, hardly any of them have 
any religious experience at all. And so the picture through which they view religion in America is extremely warped and limited. So just want to say that. Anyway, back to the story. So back to the story. So which is relevant because then I went to work for the BBC. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> that, that was just a providence, uh, the providential little comment I made there. I didn't even know. You went to work for the BBC. How, the BBC. how why did this come about? And even the BBC to Americans is kind of a confusing thing because we think PBS, but that's not no, really no, 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 no. what it's no, like. it's the main it's the main media center. Certainly, you know, um is where everyone get certainly my generation. I mean, th things have diversified a lot since but you know it's where everyone got their radio it's where most people got their tv it it's not it's not a sort of politically and tribally pegged it gets as much critis criticism from the left for being politically skewed as it does from the right mm. um and i know because i worked through some of those post bags while i was there um yeah so i having had this epiphany that it was all right for me to go and try and be involved in the world of ideas and the kind of world of the stories that a culture tells about itself. I got up that night and applied for an internship at Women's Hour, which is the sort of flagship feminist speech radio program on Radio 4. It's very kind of stately and dignified. It does not sort of, you know, burn the barricades feminist, but it's sort of women's issues, women's news. And... Um, went onto the campus the next day and was so excited and said, oh, I've applied for this internship at the BBC. And every single one of my friends went, oh yeah, everyone applies for that. No one gets it. I was like, oh, <laughs> I thought this was, you know. First uh, the Judy like, Dench thing, now yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and they said, and if you want to get, a, if you want to get a radio internship, you should, you should have been in the student radio this whole time. Like they're never going to take you seriously because you've never done student radio. And then I got an email two weeks later saying like, can you start in a, in a couple of weeks? I'm like, Okay, Lord, like, I guess, I guess this is where we're going. And so, yeah, I worked there five years on, uh, started it, I started off in radio drama, which is a very wonderful and strange place. And then in television drama, and then trying to make a television drama about the Bible, at which place, which point I had a major faith crisis and lost my faith. And then I was there for a few more years. Oh, now we got to hear about this losing your faith. <laughs> What yeah. happened? I started reading the Bible properly for the first time. Oh. I had, um, you know, I had done some quiet times and my quiet times had really focused very hard on the nice bits. You know, <laughs> the, de the, devotional, the devotional literature really did encourage me to memorize very hard that the Lord knew that the plans he had for me and they were prospering me not to harm me. But I had never cracked open Chronicles. Um, and so, yeah, I had this <laughs> very um, nerdy, intellectually curious uh, part of myself navigating through the BBC in the world of ideas. And then I had this very emotional, very beautiful, very relational faith. But there was no connection between those two parts mm. of myself at all. And... Um, I was assigned to be a researcher on a program about the Bible and they gave me one and two Chronicles and one and two Kings to become like a world expert in. Sorry. When you, when you work at the BBC, you can ring wow. up and say, huh? yeah, not, a, not a world expert as in a scholar, but like enough of an expert to really guide a couple of episodes of a TV drama about it. That's absolutely terrifying, but go on. Complete, 
completely terrifying i know and um everyone else I was working with had like loads of theology degrees very experienced it was one of those like very another sort of very strange thing that i was there um and I would ring these world experts and be like, hi, I'm from the BBC. Please tell me everything you know, which is what a researcher media does. Basically, they just like scoop out the brain of clever people. And um, and basically the key messages were it never happened. Or if it did, God is genocidal. It was just like right. yep. really very brutal introduction to Hebrew Bible scholarship and I just didn't have anything. I had no foundations. I had no hermeneutic. I had no, I had no theology, really. I had nothing. I was just like, oh, I've built my whole life on this terrible, terrible book. <laughs> like, what is this? And why is this happening? And it's not as nice as I thought it was. It just, just like crumbled beneath my feet. I, rem I It was such, such a bleak, lonely. I'd moved to Manchester to work work on it up there I, I didn't know anyone I didn't have any friends it rained all the time it was just it was a really really hard and dark time what did this do to your I mean so so deconstruction as it's it's now called the rebrand as it's now called I mean yeah. it's I mean this this becomes sort of a a dog fight on twitter mm. but it is it is for many people an absolutely devastating thing because you don't just lose this story that you've been living within you lose your friend at least in your parent in your case your parents were secular so um although your mother sort of yeah so what what yeah, on earth I just what were the consequences of this for you i i didn't talk about it with a lot of people mm. uh, my friends weren't there mm. like it, uh, looking back, it was early. It was the early to early to mid two thousands, um, which we call the noughties, but I gather you guys call the aughts, which I don't understand. Um, uh, I was really lonely. I didn't talk to many people about it. I had, mm. I had, I had friends, but they was most of them were still in London. I'd moved to London for that internship and to work at the BBC to begin with. And a lot of them were in church. And I think when you're riddled with doubts, you don't want to just dump your doubts on onto other people. You feel sort of, sort of this weird, horrible mix of like contemptuous of them, but also protective of them and somehow marked. And I hadn't yet made any new friends and I was, I was working with all these, I was, my main friendship group were my colleagues who were lovely, but a lot of them had already been through this while they were doing theology degrees at Oxford or Cambridge. Right. Or just didn't, you know, I was the very bouncy, naive evangelical and I didn't want to look stupid. I didn't want people to realize I hadn't worked this out before my mid twenties. <laughs> um, and yeah, my, I, I don't, I must've talked about it with my mom because I don't, really keep anything from my mum mm. but I think she probably just sort of worried about me from afar mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so how did this change you're working at the BBC how did this change other parts of your life in terms of your career I mean did you just sort of then sort of just get absorbed into the background of of secularity 
No, it didn't last very long. Basically, I was a very bad atheist. I really, really tried hard. I was. I'm just not cut out for it. I don't have the, I don't like, I have this book coming out and I, the, 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 the line that was coming back to is like, I really, I felt like I should admire the kind of austere nobility of being able to gaze into the void without flinching, but I flinched. I was like, and I honestly don't, it feels incredibly inhuman not to flinch. <laughs> but this is this is so true because I listen to some of these stories and I listen to some of these deconstructed stories and they're so sad because I, I I listen to these people or I talk to these people and it's like you had a rich life that you enjoyed and mm. you traded it for this and the only thing you seem to the, the only thing you seem to have kept out of the transaction is your pride. Yeah. Was was your pride really worth all of this other loss? And I, I don't want yeah, to minimize although it. I think, no, and but, I do think you, what you said earlier was more compassionate, Paul. Like, I don't I don't think anyone chooses it. I went, no. I went and talked to a bunch of um, Welsh pastors. They asked me to go and give them a lecture on deconstruction. And the whole thing was trying to move them from basically angry about it yeah and defensive yeah. and pissed off yeah because people in deconstruction and i was can be very like acting out of pain yeah. and acting out of grief and lashing out yeah and feeling like they've been fooled and feeling cheated and yeah. also often christians are terrible at engaging with them and answering questions and taking it seriously and they want them to just put all the doubts back in the box yep yeah and so yeah i don't think anyone would like I certainly felt like I could not remain a whole person and not take what I had discovered seriously. Right. Like my identity will crack down the middle if I don't find a way to take my brain and apply it <laughs> right. to this thing. Right. Um, yeah. It. I I've lost my train of thought, but yes, that's well, me no. in, def in defense of deconstructionists. I don't think anyone actively chooses it. And I don't, I don't, I, I honestly, I feel very lucky slash blessed that I was a bad atheist, right? I I couldn't I couldn't shake him off. Yeah. I was just like, go away. I am done. <laughs> it really felt like, you know. Your ex-boyfriend wouldn't let you go. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, I'm done. I'm done with you. I don't need you. I'm too sophisticated for this. I'm too grown up or I want to be, you know, like I... I, this is this is for naive people you know this is for emotional people this is for uneducated people and i don't want to be one of those and yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna walk away from this because it makes no sense yeah. but i i couldn't i like i would cycle around manchester i'd be like i don't believe in you no i mean i don't believe in god <laughs> stop talking to me you're not real yeah <laughs> yeah it's like everything else fell apart. All of the structures, my ability to go to church, read the Bible, it all left. But I, did, yeah. I didn't know how not to pray. It's like this is an ongoing conversation that my soul is having. <laughs> Shut it down. There's this amazing poem um, called "Staying Power" by Jean Murray Walker. Have you ever read it? No. You should put it in the show notes. It is amazing. It is this real like. Um, she talks about like, trying to smash a telephone. <laughs> just like the coils are coming like, 
stop calling me. <laughs> well, you you asked um you you mentioned on Twitter asking about this little corner and th and that has I'll just give you a little intro into where how I got here. So I I you know I'm a pastor of a dying church, but I've always been interested in things in the middle of the of the aughts as we call them. I did a deep dive into Tim Keller because I needed you know, I needed some things. And so that led to two or three hours of listening to Tim Keller stuff a day. And then by about 2013, 14, I sort of cooled on Tim Keller. I sort of started watching things happening in my denomination. And then in, in 2017, early 2017, Jordan Peterson comes across my radar screen and it's like, oh, what's, what's going on here? Because I had seen... So many people, friends, family, people I knew through church, walk away from the faith and they'd either go down the road of, let's say, new atheism or down the road or Northern California, sort of new age, yoga, this kind of thing. And everyone was going down that road and leaving the church and nobody ever came back down those roads. And then Jordan mm -hmm. Peterson comes along and on the Internet, I start seeing people coming back down those roads. And I had a difficult time get finding other clergy who wanted to talk about Jordan Peterson because they're busy with churches. They don't have time to listen to two hours of some Jungian ramble about the Bible on the internet. But I was listening to him. And so, and I was fascinated by it. So I thought I'd make a video because I was doing a video with a member of my church called the Freddie and Paul Show. And we were doing that on YouTube. So I, thought, I can do another video on YouTube about Jordan Peterson. What's the worst that could happen? I thought... 20 or 30 people will see it and I'll have two or three new friends. And that's all I need from it. And I was unprepared for what happened. And suddenly I remember sitting in my house one day and my son is looking at my subscriber count and he's like, there's another one and another one and another <laughs> one and another one. It's like, this is weird. And then the email started coming. Not only were they coming back down the road, they were coming back wanting to talk to me. And I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I just had what I had. And so, and that thing has sort of grown, but in, and, and, and sort of affectionately around Jonathan Peugeot and John Verveke, because very, very quickly made friends with Jonathan Peugeot. And then someone sort of connected me up to take a look at John Verveke. And then we did an event together. And so, I mean, so the three of us have kind of been in this and, and then somebody says, you know, this little corner of the internet, it kind of stuck and, so we've got the ortho bros sort of following Peugeot and we've got sort of the religious but not religious people sort of following Verveke and around me tended to be, oh, an even wilder group of people because my spiritual, my father was a minister in a poor part of Patterson, New Jersey, that he had the spiritual gift of attracting, you know, Jesus attracted the demon possessed. My father and I, we just attract the strange and so, and so then I, after the mission field, I come here to Sacramento and the same thing happens. I mean, it's homeless people. It's the most crazy, diverse church. It's just wildness. And then, so around me comes all of these people, many of whom are just in some phase of deconstruction or Christ curious, but, and the most, and when I heard you make that comment on to Justin Briarly on the thing, I, I had, I had so many people come up to me and say, I just, I really want to be a Christian, but I just can't believe this stuff. What mm. do I do? And then mm. on that little question and answer where someone actually has been listening to my stuff, you know, and I've always said, well, 
if you want to change your beliefs, people believe in herds. You, you adopt the beliefs of the people around you. So if you want to adopt a new set of beliefs, go find the people that believe that and live with them. And then mm. then you'll start to change. But anyway, so so I you know, and so I have many friends and family or who are sort of in this twilight of deconstruction. And and a lot of Christians look at it as sort of this collapse. And mm. it can be, but in my experience, things needed to collapse for often for some good reasons. And God can yeah. use that collapse to build something even better. Yeah. So so, yeah. but, but at the same time, you know, it's, it'd be nice if, I mean, Americans especially want sort of a program where, okay, <laughs> you deconstructed here and you need to do this and you'll come out of this looking like this. And it's like, no, I, I got no path for you. You might be in this thing for 50 years. I'm sorry. It's just the way it goes. God doesn't mind arranging people's lives with decades instead of moments. So mm. anyway, I'm sorry. There's mm. my sermon in the middle of this, uh, this little talk, but. um, So good. So no, I give thanks for that time. I think it um stripped back a lot that needed stripping away. Mm. And that it was sort of a double blessing, I think, not having been raised in like a very churchy home mm. and therefore feeling like I came to it fairly fresh. I just feel like I have had to unlearn less than my friends who were brought up in the you know, were embryonic Christians. And then having gone through deconstruction, as it would now be called, I just give fewer Fs. I just have, I have like, I kind of know what, and I kind of have two moments in our life where I sort of know what it was to at least be trying not to be following Jesus. And it's not, it's not better. <laughs> and like, I always come back to, to whom else shall we go? Like I have very low expectations about the institutions of the church, uh, but I love the church because it's the bride of Christ, but I don't expect it to be anything other than deeply dysfunctional. And I have very low expectations about myself and the people around me, but that's sort of fine. That feels like part of the deal. And I think having had it all fall away and then find a way back in really helps with that. I'm not clenched. I feel reasonably relaxed that I might go through it again. I'm like, I really hope that I feel this intimacy and joy and the presence of God in my life like I do in this season until the day I die. And I mm. don't think there's any reason not to. But also, you know, valleys and mountains, <laughs> dark yeah. nights of the soul, yeah. the contemplative and the mystical traditions tell us that this is all this is sort of part of the path. Yeah. So you clearly along the way um, did a lot of reading and learning about a lot of things in the Christian world. I mean, you couldn't do your podcast and your work without that. What was it? Was it this deconstruction that brought that on for you? Or is this just sort of stuff you picked up? Yeah, that's so interesting. I don't think I've ever known. That's not something I was aware of as a. Hmm. I. So the way back in was that a friend asked me on an apologetics training weekend because someone had dropped out and she's from from my old church and she said it's okay don't have to come to any of the sessions but it's just a weekend in a nice hotel and you know it's free i wanted to see my friends from church from london i, mm. want, I felt i was so lonely yeah and i went and it was <sighs> 
run by a wing of the Zacharias Trust connected to Ravi Zacharias. This is what I mean. This is why I have incredibly low, incredibly low expectations, church institutions. Literally the two key points in my faith journey were in the consolation of men who turned out to be bad news. Wow. Um, but the people on that weekend were not bad news. They were good news. And they mm. were... <laughs> I was going to say something incredibly xenophobic. I was like, they were the British version, which really <laughs> calms it down a lot. Um... <laughs> Apologies. All right. Sense. You know, I really appreciate the time you gave me and you're busy. <laughs> I know we're just going to turn this off. <laughs> yeah. My camera uh... stopped focusing. I'm actually going to turn it on off, but you keep talking. Okay. Um... Uh. <laughs> I hope it turns on again. Oh, there we are. Okay, good. I didn't know if you're coming back. Um, yeah. So they that the way back in was was having to lay some intellectual foundations and to think about the ideas and think mm. about the claims and think about what on earth is this book and what are we doing here. It was really slow and long, but um. Yeah, so, so partly it was that kind of study in that field, just reading and thinking about ideas for myself. And then I went on and did a master's in theology as part of that process. Oh. Um, theology and the arts, though. So my systematic theology is terrible, but I know a lot about a lot, a lot about theological aesthetics. Hmm. Um, yeah, and then I think I married a philosopher who I met on that weekend, um, Christian philosopher, and we are perfectly matched because we're both massive nerds and I think probably a lot of it is just we sort of suck in ideas and then talk about them in bed and it's deeply erotic <laughs> I knew I mean you're around single Christians enough and the truth is I mean you're you're opening up religiously and you're there's people that you're attracted to around you, these things happen. So um, I, I knew I knew this was going to get into the story somehow. It always does. It almost <laughs> always does. So, okay. So I don't know how far we are from whatever it is that launched this podcast, which is how I found <laughs> you. I, I, yeah. I, so was it I'll, a lot? I'll, because... I'll zip through the next chapter. Um, yeah, so... I was still at the BBC at that time, but beginning to be restless and feeling like this early sense of vocation, actually, about the stories that a culture tells about itself and the kind of imaginative, the plausibility structures and the way they make it easier or harder for people to conceive of the possibility of divine love or to treat each other as fully human. Um, it was coming back to me and I'd hoped to do that at the BBC and I had felt like I had contributed a bit, but ultimately in media, you react you react to what's happening you know you react to the news you react to whoever's published a book you react to whatever anniversary it is it wouldn't let me make programs about what is a good life um for no good reason you need, you need a war and you need to be c.s lewis to get the chance to do that kind of stuff exactly and i worked on programs like the moral maze which is these very which is a very kind of flagship ethical discussion program but even then like they want you to sort of uh, to, to get like nice clear views, you always find yourself going for the people who have who are most extreme on anything and yeah. finding the sort of messy middle where most of us sit yeah. doesn't doesn't make good radio apparently. Um, so I started looking around and praying about what was next, and then I ended up being the director of um, a small Christian think tank called Theos, um, and 
I ran that for 10 years and it grew and we did interesting comms things and increased our research. And it sits in, in kind of the UK public conversation as a kind of credible, intelligent, um, I hope, I think it's right. <laughs> credible, intelligent, um, kind of open-minded, but Christian voice in conversations. So it's, um, and particularly working on things that, you know, like last year was all about death, um, health, immigration, people trying to expand the idea of what we think of as like religious issues and saying, if you have a vision for all of life, if you think that, you know, uh, this, this faith has an impact for how we structure society at all levels, not just on these very neuralgic issues around sex and death, essentially, um, then we should have something sane and kind and engaging to say on these things. So ran that for 10 years, um, had two babies, came uh, to 2016, 2017, and the combo of the Brexit referendum and the election of Donald Trump felt like a interesting idea in our public conversations and someone who pays a lot of attention to the kind of cultural atmosphere and the milieu that we're in and the stories that we're telling, I was just like, this does not feel, this does not smell good. <laughs> you know, this does not feel like this is helping us love our neighbor. This is not helping us um, serve the common good, create a common life where people can flourish. I didn't know how to help really, but I was missing making radio. And so I was working with a guy called Hussein at the time who had come in from, um, he'd been working for, um, oh, what's the, What's the site that got that got really famous for listicles? Huge online news site. Oh, Buzz Buzzfeed. Buzzfeed. He'd been covering religion for Buzzfeed, uh, but Buzzfeed because he was a Muslim, they religion? were like, yeah, yeah, for a while. Huh. Uh, but he, because he was a Muslim, they were like, go cover terrorism. And he was like, uh, I think you'd find this issue a bit more complicated than that. So there's more going on on the religion beat than terrorism, and I wonder why you want me to cover it. Huh? Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it was. It was. Is there a wonder people sort of look at journalism cynically and just think journalists tend to be shallow? <laughs> oh yes, certainly it is an interesting formative atmosphere. Um, uh, so he came to us as a Christian think tank and we're like, I really want to do thoughtful things on religion, and I'm a Muslim, and I and I was like, let's make a podcast. <laughs> um, so uh, we started interviewing people about what was sacred to them all different religions, all different backgrounds, political uh, positions as a way of trying to model an empathetic and curious and open engagement across difference in public life. So it is possible that this person whose position that you hate is fully human. And if you listen to their story in a very similar way as you're doing, they will stop being just a sort of two-dimensional representative of a position and they will become someone that even if you don't agree with, you will find it harder to hate. And it was really a peace building project in disguise. I am very exercised by the nonviolent peace building tradition, by Jesus's teaching about how we're supposed to treat our neighbors and our enemies. Um, and that was in 2017. Okay. Is that is that the origin of this sacred podcast that you've yes. been doing? Yeah. Yeah. So the it's called The Sacred because there is a, a sociologist called Scott Atran who wrote a book called Talking to the Enemy and uh, did a lot of work on situations of high polarization, high division, um, Israel-Palestine being 
you know, he then and now. And he had this idea that most of the time we function according to the sort of economic rational actor theory, that most of our decisions are, you know, how do I maximize my comfort and my convenience, you know. But in situations of high polarization, rational, rational values are not at play. It's sacred values that are at play. And you know the difference because if you offer someone money to give up their sacred value, they are less likely to budge because they will feel insulted. Mm. And so the land becomes sacred in the Israel-Palestine yeah. situation, but in the abortion debate, yeah. you know, the, the sanctity of human life or bodily autonomy are functioning yeah. as these sacred values that are not amenable to kind of how do we how do we get us both to meet, you know, how do we just work according to our interests? It's not about interests. Um so the fact it was called the sacred was not really because we were a religion think tank and I was a Christian. It was because I was trying to get to deep values. Um, but the fact we call we called it the sacred and we asked people what's sacred to them did create this kind of signaling to people that it was a place where they could talk about sacred things, things of the spirit, metaphysics comfortably and openly, which they proceeded to do. What have you learned doing this podcast thing? Everyone is fascinating. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> You'd almost think they had, they were made in the image of God, the way as fascinating as people can be. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the people who you think are going to be most boring are the most interesting. And if you... <clears throat> You know, and it is the bit of me that is a journalist and has a has a soft spot for journalists. I, I, I have you ever seen The West Wing? Uh, I've seen bits of it. I was okay. never a devotee. There were some people I knew that they 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 lived and died on that show. Yeah, there's a there's a character in that called CJ who is both very tall and loves journalists, and I feel mm. a lot of affinity with her. But so the... you moved from Judy Dench to The West Wing. CJ, okay, CJ, keep yeah. going. Um, I'm going to be really triggering some of your listeners. Um, but uh. That's okay. Yeah, the 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 power of attentive listening, and I I now do it in coaching. I have roles which are sort of akin to chaplaincy. I have always had that kind of pastoral leaning with people. The power of 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 curiously giving someone your attention over time. And asking the kind of questions that they might not get asked every day, which allows them to open up thoughts that they might not have consciously had before. It's just, it's just magical. It's a, it's the quietest things that are the most powerful. And I think that kind of listening is sort of just deeply, deeply transformational. Yeah. Uh, just become more and more convinced of it over time. Yeah. 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 Yeah, some therapists have figured that out too. And uh, it's, you know, it's, I always thought it was this pastor Jedi trick, you know, and people are like, <laughs> you, you know, I, I I would tell people that, you know, what I do most of the time is I just listen to people and they're like, no, you've, you've got to be, you know, giving them, giving them the word, you know, like, like, uh, like the people coming into my office are little birds and I'm stuffing it in there. And it's like, mm. nah, all, you, all they're going to do is choke. Um, yeah. you gotta, and, and so that was, that was what immediately struck me when I opened up your conversation with John, it's like, oh, oh, they, they know this too. <laughs> and, and because part of what had sort of become, so it was very strange when myself, a dramatically, um, unimpressive 
uh, failure of a pastor, you know, as you know, America is all about big booming churches and my church is dying. So I must clearly be doing something wrong. And, and then when this YouTube channel starts to take off and, and, and what I, and because people started writing to me. And so I started just doing this, what we're doing right now on zoom. And I was started to do it a lot. And then I noticed repetition. So then I'd record it like we're doing it now. And then every now and then I'd say, could I share this on my channel? People be okay. And that got attention because even though those videos get the fewest views, people, and, and then we started a discord server because I had a local meetup and some techies who were doing it. And then I noticed that people were doing what I was doing because I had been doing it. So, so this, so basically attentive listening became sort of a core part of our culture in this little corner. And so that's been interesting. And so that's why when I saw you doing, I thought, oh, oh, someone else is doing that. Make them stop. <laughs> that's our thing. <laughs> like the unauthorized exorcist of the gospel of Mark. Um, but no, so. Where is this going for you? Are you just happy doing this? I think so. I'm not someone who has five-year plans or strategies. Honestly, it's going to sound very pious, but I tend to go, are we, is there something I should be stopping or something I should be starting? And then listen. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I am surprised that we, you know, we iterate and we've changed things editorially and the quality has gone up and, you know, we moved to YouTube not very long ago at all. So the fact there's now videos of my face is still something I'm quite uncomfortable with, but the, the heart of the thing hasn't really changed at all. And the fact that I'm not bored of it, I'm, mm. I'm easily bored. <laughs> um, the fact that I'm not novelty seeking a different project or to take it in a completely different direction surprises me, but it, feels like every time is a new thing because it's a new person and it's a yeah. new fragile beautiful world of meaning that i get to just gently invite out into the world and to help people see and hear how complex each individual is and how fragile and how actually very often the conclusions they've come to make complete sense from where they started and what they've experienced and yeah, yeah I, I i probably won't go forever but um, then the series that we have coming out next, I've enjoyed, we've recorded about half of it and I've enjoyed more than ever. And then after that, we'll do a, a, a themed series that connects with the book that I have coming out, um, which will be, a, will be a change. And I'm excited to see how that goes, but then we'll pray and see where it goes next. And I have no idea, Paul. It's, the, it's a very long-winded way of saying, I have no idea, but I'm really enjoying it. Good, good. I don't have a problem with that. Um, well, tell me about the book. It's called Fully Alive, Tending to the Soul in Turbulent Times. I have a proof. Let me get it. Ooh. Looks like this. Um, and is out in May, available for pre-order. And um, it is a very, it's, it's a very strange book uh, that I spent, quite a lot of years writing in my head and not thinking I would be able to write mm -hmm. because it doesn't fit in any genre that I know of, but it is part memoir, part personal essay, 
uh, very much trying to make the case for Christian spirituality, theological ideas for everybody else. And so I have so many contacts, so many friends who are um, deep thinking, seeking meaning, you know, um, asking questions about how we build society, asking questions about where the world is headed, desperate for places to sort of steady their souls, but will look anywhere else. <laughs> the right. UK is just right. like Buddhism, Hinduism, many of them taking lots and lots of psychedelics, some of which is proving extremely missionally fruitful which is interesting yeah. um you Some know of which isn't because i mm, see those two yeah what well, yeah there's a very complex yeah. environment of but fascinating um yeah. you know and anyway yoga stoicism yeah um not christianity like it's just somehow rule, ruled out of ancient wisdom yeah. <laughs> um and so i am trying to write a book that is accessible to people who have some right and grounded nervousness about the institutions of Christianity, who might be people who have deconstructed, deconstructed or people who all they see is the sort of media portrayals of the worst of the church. Um, but want wisdom. And I'm so I'm trying to translate across that divide and say, these are just like two millennia of deeply astute psychological understanding of how humans work and what we need and how we change and let's not lock them in a dusty box and forget about them because particularly now given the changes that we're seeing in the world we are going to need wisdom we are going to need the things that can help us love our neighbor over time we're going to need the things that help us grow in virtue we're going to need to actually grow up our souls and not just be these like passive puppets of media consumption and stimuli well it's good do you know who jordan hall is jordan greenhall i don't think so a friend of john verveke um okay. very much so i i knew david fuller rebel wisdom that yeah. whole space yeah uh jordan was on rebel wisdom just this morning i get onto twitter and people are all over me Jordan Hall has become a Christian. I will, after this, I will send you the link to the podcast where he tells mm. about his story. And when you hear it, it will be like, oh, yes, this is, this is, this is what's happening in sort of an intensified version. So yeah. I'll send you that link. Would you talk to randos? Who are randos? <laughs> I sort of know that this is called randos, but I still don't. Yeah, this is this is called premise. randos because well, you were you were a rando to me until you talked to John John Verveke. Um, my my sense is in on YouTube and in the media, we tend to look to interview people who have achieved a degree of status um, mm -hmm. in one field or another, and mm -hmm. that tends to be the consumption and part of what for me makes this little corner special is because um, just like you said earlier, people are incredible. And mm. in almost every case, if you actually, maybe with a little bit of help, because it's not necessarily an easy thing to tell your story. And so mm. kind of what I do with people is kind of help them, you know, look over here, look over there. What was with that? Um, because 
so much of our since once we had these representational medias, you know, newspaper and then radio and then television, the mass media and now YouTube, social media, these images are recalibrating everybody's worldviews in such subtle and powerful ways. Mm. And um, so I don't know if uh, I, I, I don't know if you could. I mean, the reason I can do it is because I'm the pastor of a dying church. And um, seven years from retirement, and I I remember when I told my son, he said should he was doing a little political thing because I got two kids that are in politics, and um, and and he said, well, what about YouTube? I said, don't go on YouTube. YouTube is a place for people with little to lose. Um, sorry, <laughs> you have it. You have a think tank. You're doing it right. I mean, you've got some stuff there, but I I think there is a there is real power in people's stories. And mm -hmm. I know full well that if I do a conversation with Jonathan Peugeot or John Verveke, you know, people watch yeah. it. Yeah. If I do a conversation with some random person, hardly anybody will click on it, but some will. And what I what I sort of learned watching some a third generational minister watching my father minister in a very poor part of a very poor city. Um, is that just like you said, people are amazing mm -hmm. and their lives matter to God mm -hmm. and God sees them. Yeah. And so every now and then I really like it if, if, if we can help people be seen and, um, and in all their strangeness sometimes. So I guess that's just a thought. If you, if you ever sitting around thinking, who should we have on here next? Yeah. Pick up a rando somewhere and, uh. So I've I've often I've I've tried to maintain a way that anybody can get on my channel, or at least anybody can get a conversation with me. They might not get on the channel, but mm -hmm. um, almost everyone does. So anyway, so that's just a thought. Why why don't they? That's just me being nice. Why don't they what? Is it because something in the conversation feels too private for them to put up? Or that's usually the reason because we start yeah. talking and they have to talk about how they've been hurt and how, what their parents did or what an ex-spouse did or something like that. It's too, it doesn't belong yeah. on YouTube. So actually I yeah. started a membership section because I've got other people and there's a valence between men and women in this too. Um, because it's it's just different for women on YouTube than it is mm -hmm. for men. It's different for women in the public eye in general. Exactly. So, so I started sort of a, a, a very low priced membership section because I had a number of women who wanted to participate, but they're like, I don't want to be out there on the open internet. And I said, I don't blame you. So then we tend to have them. It, it's, it's amazing what $3 will uh, keep people, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> how $3 can keep people out. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, so it's no Randall's conversations. It's generally because we're talking about other people. And so yeah. then it's much more of something that happens in a pastor's office and that's where yeah. we keep it. But if the conversation yeah. is something that it's okay to share and the person is willing to risk it because there is risk involved, then we share it with the channel. And again, they get the least clicks, but those who follow it closely. And, and then what has happened is, so I just did a conversation with Jonathan Peugeot and he says, we're not trying to start a community. I did a conversation with, uh, John Verveke said, we're not trying to start a community. And it's like, 
that's the fun part for me. I am a pastor. And so one of the things you learn in a church is that someone comes into the church, they see the pastor, you preach a sermon or something, or you're kind to them. And they're like, there's my new best friend. And it's like, I'm the pastor. I can't really be your new best friend. So sort of like, don't fall in love with your therapist. Um, I will be your friend, but the, the whole handoff that happens in churches, you need to be wed to Christ and his body. And that mm-hmm. means you need to have be a part of a network of relationships with one another. And that is what has grown. And it's happened through YouTube and in-person meetings and this other thing that I started called Estuary, which is basically a church-adjacent conversational platform where people can actually sit in a room and talk with people that are different from themselves in kind of a structured, productive way. And so I'm trying to get pastors to sort of open up spaces like that in their churches. So anyway, so that's what I've been working on. But um, there's real power. There are so many lonely people out there. And if you're, I I, I started to recognize this when years before I, I had a little podcast where I'd put my sermons on. And then I would get, and then I would get approached by people who you could rightly call them recluses. They lived in their house. They looked at their screens. Relationships with their family were tense or non-existent. And they had hardly any friends. And that used to be older people. And now I'm seeing it in younger people. Mm. And so what a lot of my goal has been has been okay we're going to start on a screen but then we're going to walk outside the door and we're going to go to a place and we're going to meet people in person and a lot of people don't realize people who have had good upbringings that having a conversation is a skill you're going to need to learn it Mm. you're going to need to figure out the back and forth there's a lot more people on the autism spectrum out there. They're struggling with some of these things, but it's if, and actually it was amazing. If, if we have any hope of getting through the kind of polarized destructive world we're creating now, it's going to have to be because people can have conversations with one another that, that they're very different from and learn friendship because you will not live in this you will not live in this world if you can't have a friend and so mm. many people don't have even one yeah. so anyway so that's 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 what i care about and so yeah. if if i can create a community using this crazy medium i will do it and so that's what i'm doing you're doing what you trained to do yeah i'm a pastor so well, we are coming to the end, and it's 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 midday here in Sacramento, but it's late night for a busy mother. And um, so, I don't know, anything else you want to say or do or pitch or ask or anything like that? No, I think we should end it on what you just said, because it's beautiful and profound. Well, thank you. And yes, if you haven't found the sacred, I'll put a link below and it's in podcast longer. And so if you want to, I mean, a lot of people listening to me, the Verveki, you talk to Ian, you got Nick Cave. I, a lot of people around are like, 
how, you know, I, I can't get Nick Cave to talk to me. You've got Nick Cave. Good for you. So, um, but they've got a wealth of things. And I, you know, the reason I do these conversations like I do is because just like you said perfectly, if I got you on here to talk about all of your ideas, then you're kind of a sock puppet talking about ideas. And yeah. nobody's going to care about your ideas until they have some, until they care about you. And the only way they're actually going to care about you is if usually once we go through your story, they will find something in your story that connects with them. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, well, I might not agree with her. I might not be a Christian. I might think it's all hogwash, but she's yeah. a real life human being. Yeah. There's so. another thing I realized I've been doing intuitively, which is if you get people talking about their childhood, the listener imagines them as a child and mm. then they're immediately less threatening and you feel a protectiveness, I think, to most people when they talk about their childhood and it then lowers that uh fight or flight threat reaction that we get to people that are different from ourselves and it um, allows them to really hear them in a way that they might not if you go straight in with their big fancy job when they were in their 20s yeah 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 anyway elizabeth you have um i hope you have a a restful evening with your husband i hope your children stay in bed <laughs> so do i and thank you so much for this. I'll probably clip it a little bit and then put it out next week or so. It's been a joy, Paul. Thank you so much for having me on to talk to you. All right. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. God bless you. God bless you. What well, do you want me to say a prayer for you? I'd love you too. I do that. Yay. Lord, you are a good God. And we are we are Whoa. such we are people that are so full of ourselves. And we, we run around this world thinking we're gods and we're in charge and we can run things and things are a mess, but if only everyone would listen to us, it would be fixed. And so many of our problems are the result of our past fix-it efforts. Lord, what a what a joy it was for me to discover. Elizabeth and her podcast to discover someone in a different part of the world doing something very much like what I am doing and realizing very much the same needs that I saw. And Lord, I believe it's because um, we met your son and we saw something in your son that we didn't see anywhere else. And that son of God came to this world to rescue us from ourselves. And Lord, we are sheep and we do go astray and you are the good shepherd. And I pray, Lord, that you bless Elizabeth. I pray that you bless her think tank. I pray that you bless her marriage. I pray that you bless her children. And Lord, it's it's very clear that, um, yeah, you've had your hand on her for a long time now and you will bring to completion the good work that you've started. So I pray, Lord, that you give her the best desires of her heart, and that you you bless her work richly. Hear my prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Can I pray for you? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you for this brother on the other side of the world. Bless his pastor's heart. Bless his openness to the wind of the spirit and where it's led him.
I pray, God, that um, I just want to hold with a question mark this line he uses about a dying church. I don't think he's pastoring a dying church. He's pastoring a body that is in many different places. Your bride is so beautiful and so bruised. Pray strengthen Paul as he leads and tends and wants to be a good shepherd like you are a good shepherd to us. Would you give him even more integrity and humility and courage? Would you give us both those things, Lord? Keep us from ego in these places and these platforms that want to feed our egos. Keep us from busyness. Keep us from hurry. Let us attend to your voice and turn our attention to your cross. I do pray you'd use us richly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm sure we'll talk again. I suspect we will. Take care. Have a good evening. Good day. Bye.